George Wishart uh, was the Bishop of Edinburgh in the 17th century. He, was, uh, he got in trouble with the law, even as a bishop, and was condemned to die by hanging. Um, and, when, and when he was on the scaffold, being prepared to be hung, he made use of a custom of that time that permitted the condemned to choose a psalm to be sung before they were hung. And guess which psalm he chose? Probably the same one you would choose if you were a thinking person. The longest psalm in the Psalter, the longest chapter in the Bible. And this particular strategy accomplished what he desired before they actually finished the psalm. Somewhere around the 120th verse, a pardon came from a local governor and his life was spared because of the length of this psalm. And so don't feel bad if we spend a little bit of time here. It may save your life. At least I know it'll give you life. Renewed joy, uh, renewed passion for God. This is my goal for preaching this psalm. It's a little different than Wishart's goals for having it sung, but I do believe that in learning and applying the scripture that we see in this psalm will bring vibrancy to your Christian life. And so my goal is that you will, with much anticipation, return week after week to hear what the Holy Spirit has for us as we unpack this amazing psalm. Just to review for you some basics that we covered last week in our introductory sermon on this psalm, Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. Uh, It has 22 stanzas, stanzas representing the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of these stanzas has eight verses. And each verse, at least in the Hebrew, begins with the letter of that particular uh, alphabet. And so each verse refers to the Word of God, with the exception of a few uh, verses, but there are at least eight synonyms for the, for the title of Scripture in this chapter. For example, 25 times the Word of God is referred to as the law. Uh, 24 times it's referred to as the Word. 23 times it's referred to as ordinances or judgment. And 23 times it's referred to as testimonies. 22 times as commandments. 21 times as decrees or statutes, 21 times as promise, and six times as ways or path. All these are synonyms for the Word of God. And so when we get to them, I'll try to help you understand the nuance of the title used so that you better understand kind of that facet that the author's after in using that particular title. So my plan is to take you through this psalm stanza by stanza, eight verses at a time, uh, going and helping you seeing the the main idea of that particular stanza, and then backing up and taking the contents of that stanza in subsequent sermons to get you more acquainted with the content there. So it's going to be at least a long time (laughs) before we get through this. So 22 sermons, plus a few under each stanza. What does that mean? Two years, maybe, would be a good guess that we might be here in Psalm 119. Uh, but I, I promise you that, that if we are diligent 
in preparing ourselves to hear what the Word has to say for us, then you will be blessed and encouraged in your Christian life and seeing the value of filling your soul with the Word of God. So let's begin by reading the first stanza, the Aleph stanza, Aleph being the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Let's read these first eight verses. Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. And so the first point that I want to show you here that the psalmist is making is found in verses 1 and 2. And that is the promised blessing. You will remember the psalm that Josh just read for you, Psalm 1, sounds very familiar to what I just read for you from Psalm 119. So keeping your finger in Psalm 119, I want you to turn back with me to Psalm chapter 1. And I want to show you the parallels here. And by the way, these are, it's not coincidental that Psalm 1, which is the first psalm of the Psalter, begins with a blessing, a promise of blessing. And Psalm 119, which is an exposition of Psalm 1, begins with the same promise. Notice the similarities as you flip back and forth. Psalm 1 begins, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on it day and night. Back to 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his statutes, who seek him with their whole heart. And so you see the similarities here of these, uh, both promising that the person who's going to find peace, the person who's going to be content, the person who's going to experience happiness is the person who's going to find themselves in the Word of God. When you read the word blessed in Scripture, really it is our understanding of the word happiness. Happy are those who find themselves in the Word of God. This is what I want you to understand here this morning. Philosophers throughout human history have acknowledged that the chief interest of man is to be happy. No matter what decisions you and I make, they, we make them in order to be happy. The reason you exercise is so that you'll be happy. The reason you diet or eat or don't eat is because you want to be happy. The reason you came here this morning, no matter what your uh, superfluous motive was, it is ultimately to be happy. That's why you're here. You either want your neighbor to stop bothering you and asking you to come to church, or you actually want to get something from the Word of God this morning or praise Him together with other believers or some reason to fulfill your desire to be happy. That's why you're here. Listen to this from 17th century mathematician. And so there is value in mathematics. Listen to what he said. All men seek happiness. This is Blaise Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man 
even those who hang themselves. Think about it. Every decision we make is in pursuit of our own personal happiness, even the person who commits suicide. If you say that you aren't interested in happiness, you're either dishonest or very abnormal. Apart from our Creator's instruction on how we can be happy, we really don't know how to find it, which presents us with a problem. We all have this built-in desire to be happy, a a God-ordained desire to be happy, and we have no way of fulfilling that desire in and of ourselves. And here's the key. God designed it that way for a purpose. He's intentional about this. So we have a desire to be happy, but no way to fill it. We, we, we try all sorts of things to, to fill out this desire to be happy. And we're all familiar with the ways, but this illustration might help you understand what I'm saying. If I have a two-by-four two up on this pulpit with a nail at the top of it, and I want to drive that nail into that two-by-four, uh, is it going to work if I pull a Q-tip out of my pocket and begin hammering on that nail? No. How about a marble or a comb, maybe a key, I could get a heavy key. No, the only way that that nail is going to be driven into that two by four is with a hammer, which it was designed to do. The only way that we are going to be happy, based on the knowledge of our creator, is to be filled with his word. That's the whole point of this first eight verses. And by the way, it is the foundation for the rest of the psalm. The desire of the psalmist, which is why he begins the first three verses with a promise of blessing, is that we will be full of the word of God and committed to obeying it. This is really important to understand. Like I said, we try all sorts of different ways to to be happy, but we remain unfulfilled until we hear of the instructions laid out by our Creator in His Word. Since this world is under the influences of Satan, he orchestrates destructive and misleading ways to get us to seek happiness. Um, They are false paths, of course, that lead us away from God and towards despair. But the world continues to sell these goods and we continue to buy them. Uh, We continue to believe that more money will make us happy, more status, more sex, fewer restraints or different surroundings or circumstances This will certainly do the trick, but happiness remains elusive, doesn't it? See, the problem isn't your circumstances or your present relationships. Our problem is us and the sin that dwells within. Sin continues to warp and disfigure every good thing that we try to do, and it brings about discontentment. Because the things that we try to fill our lives with to bring about happiness aren't designed by God to do so. It's like using a Q-tip on a nail. It's not going to work. I don't care how diligent you are in pursuing it. It's not going to work. So whatever our circumstances or our relationships are, we find out that sin there is with us. And we can't shake it. So the question that might come to someone's mind is how can a person, a sinful person, find happiness and fulfillment and joy in this life? Well, the answer is found in this text. What do they say? Look at verse 1. Happiness or blessedness 
uh, for, is for those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord, those who keep his statutes, those who seek him with their whole heart. By knowing and obeying the word of God, the author is saying, is where we're going to find happiness, blessedness, joy, fulfillment, contentment. Paul called this being conformed to the image of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, conforming to the image of Christ only takes place when we are exposed to his glory in his book called the Bible. This is what Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 3. He said, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. The way that we become fulfilled, joyful, content, is by being conformed to the image of Christ, and that conforming takes place through the word of Christ. So he has revealed himself in the scriptures. And when we pour these scriptures over our soul, we become more like him. And then we become more content and joyful and happy. So if the Bible is actually God's word, and we are predestined to become as Christians like God's son, Jesus Christ, it makes sense that God would use his word to accomplish that objective. It is in the word where we find Christ. It's in the word where we see his character. It's there where we discover what it means to have Christ live in us and through us. It's in the word that Paul found the secret of contentment and joy. He found it in Christ. And so if we want to change, if we want to find true happiness, if we want to be content people, which we all do, it's only going to happen through an exposure to the word of God, which will bring about Christ-likeness. Look at verse 1 again. It says that the path to blessing the path to happiness is found only in the law of the Lord. Now, because of our experience with the law, it's hard to understand how happiness can come from something restrictive. Think of the laws that you're familiar with, speed limits, environmental laws, and so forth. Uh, those things bring about negative thoughts in our minds. Even though these laws are designed to protect us, we feel restricted in some way just thinking about them. For example, speed limits keep us from getting to someplace on time, right? Environmental laws keep us from enjoying a campout. And so we have all these restrictions on us and we feel negative about laws in general. The Word of God also has laws, right? Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, covet, etc. Those things make us feel restricted, even though they're designed for our good. But when we read in verse 1, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. It has more in mind than just the Ten Commandments. It has all of God's revelation to us in his word from beginning to end. In our case, from Genesis to Revelation. It's not just the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 that's in view here. It's much, much broader than that. Everything that God has to say to us about life, about godliness, is found here in his book, the Scriptures. And so we come to them, we, we pursue Christ in them. So what I, want, what I want you to understand now is that when we look at verse 1 and it says that happiness is found by those who walk in the law of the Lord, it, it means that happiness comes to those who know and live by all that God has said. And now I want to take an important step with you. It's critical that you understand 
that happiness doesn't come from just knowing the word, but knowing and obeying the word. This is what these verses also include. Those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Do you see this? This is so critically important. Who keep his testimonies. What we know about the Pharisees, at least from the Gospels, is that they knew the Scriptures backwards and forwards. They, many think, were required to memorize the entire Old Testament. They knew the Word. That wasn't the problem. It was the application of the Word that was the problem in their lives. And so if we're going to experience the promised blessing from verses 1 and 2, we must understand that we might, it needs to go beyond a head knowledge and must become a part of our practice. And I think one of the best ways to apply the Word of God throughout our days or to walk in it is to by having it in our hearts or in our minds, having it memorized, knowing it, knowing the contents thereof. So if we want to know how to obey, walk, and so forth and so on, we, we must know the Word of God. John Ruskin is an example of this. He was not a pastor, not a theologian, not a missionary. He was a 19th century art critic. But he grew up in a home that required him to memorize large portions of the Bible. Of Psalm 119, he wrote the following. It is strange that of all the pieces of the Bible which my mother taught me, that which cost me the most to learn, and which was, to my childish mind, chiefly repulsive, the 119th Psalm has now become of all the most precious to me in its overflowing and glorious passion of love for the law of God. William Wilberforce, we're familiar with him, the British lawmaker who was primarily behind the abolishment of slavery in England. He wrote this in his diary in 1819. Today I walk from the Hyde Park corner repeating the 119th Psalm in great comfort. The great pioneer missionary to Africa, David Livingston, when he was nine years old, he won a Bible from his Sunday school teacher for repeating the 119th Psalm by memory. Uh, I, I want to try to do something like that here. I'm not sure what it's going to be, whether it's handing out of a Bible or giving you a ticket for a free Slurpee. I'm not sure what, but we would like to encourage you to memorize Psalm 119. So if you have some good ideas for a reward, a little bit below a free trip to Disneyland, um, we'd be interested in hearing your ideas. But look at verses 3 and 4 now. We've seen the promise given. Blessing comes to those who know and apply or obey the Word of God. Look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to see a little bit of a concern, a less traveled road. It's no coincidence that those who God greatly uses are very familiar with God's Word. Think about Christian history. Think about church history. Think about human history. Who is it that God has used greatly? Isn't there a close connection between those who know God's Word and those God uses greatly? Almost without exception. This is an important discovery. You don't need to be a missionary or a pastor or a theologian to need portions, large portions of the Word of God in your memory. Whatever you're calling in life, what is it? Are you a doctor, a lawyer, 
School teacher, plumber, electrician, what are you? Stay-at-home mom? You'll be a better one the more scripture you have in your mind. Yes, I'm saying this. You will be a better plumber if you know the word of God more. Any, any vocation you want to insert, you will be better at it if you know the word of God. God will use us in greater ways the more we know his word. In fact, I would venture to say that God will use us in proportion to our knowledge of and obedience to the word of God. One of the obvious reasons for this truth is that the more presence of the word of God in our minds, the less influence the world will have there, right? Pour in the word of God and out must come the stuff that we don't want in there. Like a pitcher filling it up with water, out comes the air. You put in ping pong balls, you fill it up with water, out come the ping pong balls. When you fill your mind with the word of God, out comes the rubbish. That may cause you from not being happy. That cause you to experience disobedience. Look at verses 3 and 4. Who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways? You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Friends, the reason that we lack happiness is because of sin. Is that fair enough to say? Is that, do you agree with that? The reason we lack happiness is because of sin, some degree or another. Well, the main reason that we sin is we lack the spiritual strength to resist temptation. Is that a fair statement? The reason that we sin is because we lack the strength to resist temptation. And the reason, the reason that we lack the strength to resist temptation is because we have ignored the source of spiritual strength, which is the Word of God. And so we can say, if we connect the dots, we lack happiness because we lack the Word of God. So how does this psalmist think that someone can actually get to the point in their spiritual life where they do no wrong? It's quite the standard, isn't it? He answers that question in the next, very next phrase. Look at your Bible. He says, by walking in his ways. How do you do no wrong? Well, that's, that's simple. Walk in his ways. Obey the word. I want you to notice the weight that these eight verses places on our participation in our relationship with God and his word. Look at verse 1. It says we must walk in the law of the Lord. Verse 2, we must keep his testimonies. Verse 3, we must walk in his ways. Verse 4 and 5, we must keep his statutes, keep his precepts. Verse 6, our eyes must be fixed on them. Verse 8, we must keep his statutes. That argues for personal participation in the process. And since not many are serious about their Christian life, not many make the Word of God a priority. If the Christian life were a priority, the Word of God would be a priority. It's a road less traveled. But this psalm, as we march our way through it, verse by verse, stanza by stanza, will solidify the importance of and strengthen the foundation of your personal interest in the Word of God. 
So the longer you're here, the more times you will attend, this is how this is going to work. You will leave stronger and more committed to having the Word of God be an important part of your life. This is what the psalm is saying. Look at the third point seen in verses 5 and 6. It says, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes, then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. We think that the, uh, the Christian life is, is uh, sometimes out of reach, don't we? But as, as we contemplate the main idea behind this stanza, which is that happiness is found in knowing and obeying the Word of God, uh, we begin to understand what it means to be a fruitful eye Christian, like I described last week. Uh, we, we get the feeling that we're always on the outside looking in. We think that we really aren't eagles, but we wish we were. We sometimes even get content just being a fruit fly on the window, pretending we're eagles. Well, we're familiar with many great Bible characters, spiritual giants from church history. We know their stories and their victories and their happiness, even in difficult circumstances, and we think that somehow we aren't in the same category, right? Uh, so we really can't expect to ever truly experience the joy and contentment that those giants had. We put these folks on pedestals and we say to ourselves, well, they were a special breed. They, they were favored especially by God and they were super saints. And so, of course, they were happy. Of course, they were victorious. It was Moses, for Pete's sake. But not little old me. I'm going to be content to be this fruit fly Christian looking at those great eagles of the faith and fumbling and muddling my way through the Christian life, knowing that God's word is true, sure it's true, but it really doesn't have the life-changing impact on me as it did on William Wilberforce or John Owen. I mean, it's just me. I want you to look again at verses 5 and 6. First phrase in verse 5, Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. What I see in these two verses is a cry from the heart of someone who is a lot like us. The psalmist, yes. The human author of this wonderful psalm is just like us. This is someone who struggles with sin, who hates it, and who understands the importance of God's help in being obedient. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast, the psalmist pleads. Evidently, according to this verse, even the psalmist is still on our side of the experience of happiness and joy and contentment. He still yearns for that experience. He knows that it's out there because he's seen it, but he wants it to be a personal experience. He wants the joy, the contentment, the peace that comes with the promise. And yet he doesn't have it, which is why he's calling out for it. Is verse 5 the cry of your heart this morning? Is it, could this be you? Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. Are you convinced that the word of God is really, truly the answer to happiness? Or do you believe what the world's selling, that happiness maybe is just in more stuff, more better different relationships? Or do you believe the, the blueprints that the author has given us right here that says, 
true happiness, lasting happiness, fulfillment and joy really is found in the word of God. If that is your belief, then verse 5 will be resonating in your soul. Oh, that my ways would be steadfast. That's the desire of my heart. Can you join the psalmist today and acknowledge your sin and the indifference towards the word of God and plead with God for deliverance from your lukewarmness, which is the plea of verse 5? This is the same plea that we hear from Paul. Yeah, Apostle Paul in Romans 7. Listen to these verses. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We can relate to that, right? What Christian doesn't delight in the law of God in their inner being? If you don't delight in the law of God in your inner being, you may not be saved. But there's a large chasm between desiring and delighting in the law of God and doing it, right? And so the Apostle Paul is with us and with the psalmist. He says, I have this delight in the law of God in my inner, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me a captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? It's the same plea. So we have it in the Old Testament, we have it in the New Testament, we have 150 people here saying, yeah, that's me. Where's the help? Friends, this must be the cry of our hearts. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. But let me give you a gentle warning. Wanting something and doing something are two entirely different things. I've told you this story before, but uh, when I asked my father-in-law if I could marry Sherry, word got back to my mother-in-law about that request, and she told me the next time I saw her, John, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I said, okay, that's good to know. But it's true. You can talk all you want about how you're going to take care of this daughter of mine. Talk all you want about this and that and the other thing. But let me know when the rubber meets the road. Right? We can say whatever we want about how much we love God and his word. But until we apply it and obey it, all it is is talk. And here's what the psalmist is saying. Look at verses 7 and 8. <laughs> he says in verse 7 and 8, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. He has a determined will. I will do this. He doesn't just say, I wish it were true of me. He says, the next opportunity I get, I'm going to obey. And that should be our idea, shouldn't it? The next chance you get between obedience and disobedience, here's an idea for you. Choose obedience. All right? You can do that. Simply choose to obey God's word. So having a, a cry of the heart is the first step, but it must be followed by the second important step of acting. 
I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. I will, I will. I resolve to obey. I acknowledge that I cannot do it on my own, and I plead with God for his help, which is the very last phrase in that stanza. Look at the last phrase in verse 8. Do not utterly forsake me is a cry to the Lord, acknowledging our weakness and saying, if you don't come through, God, this is going to fail. You, God, must act on my behalf. The psalmist knows that it's only those who know and obey the word of God that are happy. And because he desperately wants to be happy, he pleads with God for help to know and pleads with God for help to obey his word. So let's not keep the heroes of the faith on a pedestal and believe that we can never get there. Soaring with eagles is for the taking of any Christian who will get into the word with God's help and obey it. And so as we approach the Lord's Supper this morning, I want to ask you, Christian friend, to think for a moment about any area of your life where obedience to God is a challenge. I want you to think about your home. Are there circumstances in your home that make it hard for you to be obedient consistently? I want you to think about your work. Are there circumstances at your work that are causing a challenge for you to be obedient? How about here at church, even here? Are there things going on here or not going on here that's making it hard for you to obey? Are you putting others first in your life? At home, at work, at school, at church? Are you praying for the lost? Are you looking for ways to show them Christ? Friends, these are not things that we make up here at Sun Valley Church that we think ought to be good for you to do. This is commands of God. Put others first. Consider others more important than yourself. Pray for the lost. More commands. Listen to these. Giving. Not of just money, but of time. Are you serving in the church? Are you giving financially? These are all commands of God. So the next opportunity you have, choose obedience. Saying is one thing, doing is another. So don't just sit there and bewail your failure. Man, I'm just not happy. I just don't seem to have victory in my life. Then change your strategy. Try obedience. And you'd be surprised what happens. Get up with God's help and do something about it. Get the word of God washing over your soul and begin today at this very moment obediently following what the word of God commands. You say, I don't know where to start. Well, um, when this is over, I want you to go onto the internet and choose one of the 10,000 Bible reading plans that are available. Type in Bible reading plans and they will send you a notice every single day on what you ought to read. And so start it. Start reading the Bible. 
Get the Word of God into your heart. Get a good study Bible. Um, listen to sermons. Be in church. Come to Sunday seminar that we have between these services. Get the Word of God washing over your soul. And then practice obedience as you follow Christ. Friends, we have, we have the observance of the Lord's Supper once a month on Sunday morning. And we do this because we're commanded to in Scripture, first of all. But secondly, because we're promised in Scripture that Christ ministers to his people here around the table. God actually comes here, and through the elements that you receive physically, you are strengthened spiritually. And you say, how does that work? And here's my answer, I don't know. But God promises that that takes place. He strengthens you, and I think it has something to do with your memory about what these things represent. All right, what does this represent? We have, we have pieces of bread and a cup full of juice. The pieces of bread, of course, represent the broken body of Christ, which was broken for you. It was, it was, it was, the body of Christ was literally torn so that you would have life. His blood was spilt to cleanse your sin. And so I want to, I want to um, pray for these elements and ask the, the elders during my prayer to come forward and prepare to serve you. We're going to ask you to come forward this morning as we serve you the elements. And if you're unable to come forward or rather sit where you are, the ushers will be more than happy to bring you the elements right where you sit. But we encourage you to come forward if you can, if you're a believer, if you trusted Christ with your life and your future. We want you to come forward. Let me... Um, pray and ask God's blessing on these elements, and then I'll read from 1 Corinthians, the words of institution, and then we'll ask you to come. Father, we thank you for our study in Psalm 119 this morning. Thank you that your word gives us these great and precious promises, that happiness is reserved for those who will, by faith, come and uh, trust in the word of God and obey the word of God. Father, this morning I'm certain that there are people in this room who struggle in their spiritual life, who are uncertain about um, their walk with you. I pray that you would confirm to them through your word and your spirit what it means to follow Christ, to turn their back on sin, to embrace the offer of forgiveness in Jesus Christ because of his work on Calvary for us, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, we can have our sins forgiven. Father, for those in this room who have embraced that, I pray that you would minister them, to them through these elements, through the, the broken bread, through the cup, representing your body and blood, which were for us. Bless us now, Father, as we move into, uh, by faith, move into this part of our service. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.